John chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. We are uh, obviously continuing on in the Gospel of John in our series on Beholding the Son. And the aim is that we would come to the point at the end of our study that we're, that, that, where we are beholding Jesus Christ and His glory more fully than we are right now. And uh, unto that end, would you please pray with me as we begin this morning? Our Father, you know you know that in many of the words we've already sung this morning, that there is a great mixture of faith and doubt, of singing in truth and singing in pretense. Uh, Lord, even within ourselves, we are conflicted within ourselves, Lord, recognizing the presence of true and genuine hope in you and at the same time recognizing that we fall far short of the kind of faith that we ought to have in you. Lord, I pray that this morning you would allow your word to accomplish its penetrating and illuminating work in each one of our hearts. Or to the end that Christ would be exalted and lifted up, Lord, that he would be raised up as supreme in each one of our hearts and that we would be brought low in our own eyes. It's not an easy thing to be humbled before you, Lord, but it is an absolutely necessary thing. And so as we come to consider the humbling of Nicodemus this morning, Lord, would you please help us to be humbled in an appropriate and in a godly manner. The lower we are in our own eyes, Lord, we know this to be true. The lower we are in our own eyes, the higher and more exalted you appear to be in our eyes. So please, Lord, help us decrease this morning. And Father, we pray that Christ would increase among us. Lord, as we pray, as we come before you as a church body, we also want to make sure we don't forget to pray for those who are mourning, suffering, and the lost right now. Father, we, many of us have lost loved ones this year, and we add the Magler family to the list. And um, Lord, in your wise and in your sovereign purposes, you have chosen to call Jackie home at what appears to us to be an early age. Lord, not a single day of her life was left unfulfilled that you determined for her. Not a single hair of her head perished apart from you knowing. And uh, Father, I pray that you would comfort the Magler family now with the gospel, with the good hope that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And those who trust in him, though they die, yet they shall live in death. Father, we will be caught up. Death will not touch those who belong to you and your son. Father, comfort them with the reality that to die for the Christian and to depart from this world is simply to go be with Christ. um, So Lord, we pray for them. We also pray for the Broughton family as the funeral for uh, 
um, Joshua Broughton is today. Father, we pray that you would bless his young widow, that you would care for her and watch over her, that you would bless his children as, uh, Lord, as they mourn the passing of their father. Uh, please, Lord, let the gospel be proclaimed today at the funeral. And uh, we pray for Jacob, God, that you would empower him and strengthen him to preach the truth the way his brother would have wanted the name of Christ to be exalted, to be proclaimed. Father, we also lift up the Sean people to you and uh, pray that you as the creator of heaven and earth, as the creator of all, Lord, you who have made all nations from one man, uh, that you would own the Sean as your own possession, Lord, that you would exalt the glory of Christ among them and that they would draw near to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give them true and right knowledge of their Creator, especially as you've revealed yourself in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Father, we pray for those that we know who work among the Sean. Would you equip and strengthen them? Would you empower them for this great work that you've called them to? And help us, Lord, help us lift them up in prayer. May you hear our prayers and strengthen them for the glory of your name. Now, Father, bless the ministry of your word. May Christ be exalted in our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've been seeing in John, uh, seeing in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3 is where we have Jesus' teaching on the central place of the new birth. Really, this is the clearest section uh, concerning Jesus' teaching on the new, new birth that we have in the New Testament. When we're talking about the new birth, we've already looked at the fact that what we're, what we're speaking of is the impartation of new spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. The new birth takes place when the Holy Spirit awakens us from our deadness and sin and renews our hearts to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. When the Spirit opens our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to behold the glory of Jesus Christ, to understand the truth about Him, to accept and receive the truth about Him, and to cast ourselves in faith upon Him, to act upon that faith by believing in Him. All of that happens when the Holy Spirit brings the grace of the new birth into our lives and causes us to be born again. Now Jesus in John 3 has been explaining to Nicodemus the necessity of that new birth. You're not going to enter into the kingdom of God unless you have experienced this new birth, Nicodemus. He's not only explained to him the need and the necessity of it, but he has also begun explaining to him the nature of the new birth. And in light of what Jesus has already said in John 3, that leaves Nicodemus with an important question. And you see this in verse 9, where Nicodemus, in response to what Jesus has just told him about the new birth, Nicodemus answered and said to Jesus, how can these things be? It might be better to translate that as, how is it possible for these things to happen? How is it possible for these things to come about? That is, what makes the new birth happen and what causes the new birth to be accomplished? That's what Nicodemus is asking. Now, for someone who doesn't understand much about the new birth or maybe someone who has not yet come to experience uh, the grace of God in the new birth, there's really no better question for them to ask. How can these things be? How can these things come about? What you're saying happens in the new birth. What makes that happen in the life of a person? You know, Jesus has just spoke of the need. He's spoken of the spiritual nature of the new birth, that this is not something that is accomplished in the flesh. John 1.13 says, it's not those who are born again were not born of the flesh, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. They were born of God. And then Jesus closes in verse 8 saying that ultimately the new birth is up to the will of the Holy Spirit and is completely and utterly outside of our control. We can't manipulate this. 
And so any thinking person like Nicodemus would respond to all of this truth by saying, well, then what can be done to make the new birth happen? How can these things come about? If I must be born again, then what must be done to make it happen? That's the question that Jesus is answering for us in John chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And he does this in two ways. First of all, we see in verses 10 through 13, Jesus answering that question by humbling Nicodemus. And then secondly, we see in verses 14 through 15, Jesus answering that question by exalting himself. And in this, we see two elements that really work in tandem to bring about the new birth in a person's life. When God moves to bring a person to new spiritual life in Jesus Christ, he begins by humbling that person and then by exalting Christ in that person's eyes. And so we as sinners, in order to, or in the process of experiencing the new birth, we as sinners must be humbled. We must be brought low in our own eyes, and Christ, as the Savior, must be exalted in our eyes. And so when the Spirit blows with the wind of the new birth, these two realities will come alive in our hearts, and they will become the governing realities of our lives, our own humility before the Lord and Christ's glory before us. Now, I want to look at those um, as we move through this passage. I want to look at the humbling of Nicodemus and see in that the need for us to be humbled. And that's really what we're going to focus on today. I tried to make it all the way through to verse 15, but it was just too long, as always. So today we're going to look at Jesus humbling Nicodemus. And next week we're going to look at Jesus exalting himself, preaching the gospel to Nicodemus. So first of all, in the accomplishment of the new birth, the first thing we see Jesus doing in answering that question of how these things can come about, first thing we see him doing is humbling Nicodemus. And in verse 9, we see the first step in that humbling of Nicodemus, where we find Nicodemus left in a state of confusion. He says to Jesus, how can anything that you've just spoke about be true? How can that come to pass? In other words, how can it be that being a member of the kingdom of God is only possible for those who have experienced what Jesus refers to as the new birth? And then how in the world does that new birth begin to happen and take place in our lives? The how of the new birth has been bugging Nicodemus this whole time, if you think about it. You see, in John chapter 3, verse 4, he's asking, how can a man be born when he is old, right? The how there, can he enter into his mother's womb and be born again? Obviously, the answer to that is no. And then he returns to that same question in verse 9, how? How then? How can these things be? Clearly, he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about, and Jesus has lost him. Now, what stood out to me, what's significant to me about how Jesus responds to Nicodemus in light of that question is that Jesus doesn't backpedal and try to clarify what he was talking about, which would so often be the way you and I would respond to someone who asks us, I don't, who says to us, I don't understand what you're talking about. How, how, how is it that what you're talking about can be? Well, what we might do is backpedal and say, I'm sorry, I didn't explain things clearly enough to you. Let me go back and try and do it in a different way. You know, that's not what Jesus does here. Jesus doesn't backpedal. He doesn't blame himself for Nicodemus' confusion. He doesn't try to explain the necessity or the nature of the new birth in another way. In fact, he lays all the blame squarely at Nicodemus' feet. He says, Nicodemus, it's your own fault that you don't understand what I'm talking about. You see this in verse 10, where Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? You notice in that, Jesus is not laying blame on himself for Nicodemus not understanding what he's talking about. He says, Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel, aren't you? Shouldn't you understand what I'm talking about if you are the teacher of the people of God? 
If anyone would appear to be qualified to understand what in the world Jesus was saying, it would appear to have been Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel, as Jesus calls him. That is, he was one of the prominent teachers of the people. He spent his life being steeped in the word of God and striving to understand its meaning and trying to figure out how to apply God's will to his own life and to the lives of those whom he taught. And yet we find here that in response to what Jesus is saying, Nicodemus had no understanding about what Jesus was speaking about. D.A. Carson, I think, said it well when he wrote, Doubtless Nicodemus himself had for years taught others the condition of entrance into the kingdom of God, conditions cast in terms of obedience to God's commands or devotion to God or happy submission to his will. But here he is facing a condition that he had never heard expressed, the absolute requirement of birth from above. Nicodemus had never heard anyone say that, mention that as a requirement for entering into the kingdom of God, and he was shocked and amazed by that statement. Now, it's precisely because Nicodemus was a teacher of God's word that Jesus says, you should know these things. Because in reality, if Nicodemus had been paying attention to what Jesus was saying, and if Nicodemus truly understood the scriptures of the Old Testament the way he ought, he would have come to understand that Jesus had not actually said anything new to Nicodemus in his interactions with him here. There was nothing new or unique that Jesus had made known to Nicodemus that had not already been clearly made known to the people of God in the Old Testament. Jesus may have been using a different term than what Nicodemus had been used to hearing, but in the substance of what Jesus was saying, even though he spoke of the new birth, what he was talking about in substance was what God had already been making known to his people for millennia. God had made clear over and over again that being a member of his kingdom was not based merely upon being circumcised. It was not based merely upon being a physical descendant of Abraham, nor was it even based merely upon uh, outward observance and obedience to the law of God. None of that made a person part of the covenant people of God in their hearts. As Isaiah 29, 13 makes clear, there is a kind of honor that can be given to God that may come forth from the mouth, but is not flowing through the mouth from the heart. There's a kind of fear that God rebukes here that makes clear that this kind of fear does not flow from a true realization of God and his glory birthed in our souls, but is rather nothing more than the result of the command of men learned by rote. That is, it's a mechanical fear. It's, a, it's an unthinking and empty, formalistic type fear. And God's not pleased with that. He actually despises religion like that. God's not after our formalism. And he's made that clear even in the Old Testament. He is after the heart of his people. He's after worship and praise that flows from the soul, the core of the being of his people. As he makes that clear in Deuteronomy 10, 16, even in the law, God says to his people, in your obedience and in your worship to me, circumcise your hearts. Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, where he says that a Jew is not merely one who is a Jew outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter. What Paul's talking about there is not what we often think of as the revelation of the new birth made known in the New Testament. Paul's pointing to the Old Testament and saying, it's always been like this, people. God has never been about your formalism or your ritualistic obedience to his will. He's after your heart. He's after a true and pure and honored, honored worship of God flowing from the inner parts of your being. And if you can't give that to God, it does not matter what else you do in his name. None of it is acceptable. Having a circumcised heart was the source of all true devotion and acceptable worship to God. And if you didn't have that circumcised heart, you could not worship God acceptably. 
Now, we know in the Old Testament even that the people of God were not able to accomplish this work in their own hearts, but this was the main promise of the new covenant, wasn't it? That what the people could not do in themselves to make themselves acceptable to God, God was going to accomplish for them in the ministry of the Messiah. Ezekiel 36, 26, God promises his people that under the new covenant, he's going to remove their heart of stone and he's going to give them a heart of flesh. What is that? That's the circumcising of the heart. That's the remaking of a person from the inside out. God says, I will take out your heart of stone and I will put in its place a heart of flesh and I will renew within you a new spirit. I will put a new spirit within you and then I'll even cause my own spirit to come into you and I will make you walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey my rules because at that point you'll have a heart that longs to do it. There was nothing new about what Jesus was saying in John chapter 3 in needing the new birth to happen in order to truly belong to the people of God. The fact that Nicodemus could not recognize what Jesus was talking about was really an indictment upon himself. The fact that Nicodemus, after listening to Jesus, could not connect the dots between what Jesus was saying there and what was revealed by God in the Old Testament really did nothing but to reveal the shallowness of Nicodemus' own spiritual knowledge. He was the teacher of Israel, and yet he couldn't understand this, something that was so central and so core and so vital to the worship of the people of God, even under the Old Covenant. Nicodemus didn't get it. And the fact that this teaching was so strange to Nicodemus only served to show that he did not yet have a true understanding of what God requires for sinners in order to enter into his kingdom. You know what's true for Nicodemus is true for you and me. The same requirements that God lays upon Nicodemus here, the same requirements that God had been laying upon his people throughout the entire Old Testament... Those expectations are upon you and me just as much as they were upon them. You cannot offer unto God acceptable and appropriate worship until you have been humbled and brought to the point where you have a circumcised heart. You think about that in relation to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. That's emphatic in this verse. The article there is emphatic, and it's making clear that Nicodemus was a well-known, um, highly recognized teacher among the people of God. Jesus here tells him, Nicodemus, despite all of your learning, despite all of your religion, despite your, even your confession of faith in me, you still don't understand the very fundamental, the fundamental reality of true religion according to God's word. Jesus points that out to humble Nicodemus and to show that in all of his learning, despite all that he had achieved, he had not yet come to the point where he had a true knowledge of fellowship and life with God. So Jesus humbles him by leaving him confused. Secondly, we find that Nicodemus is humbled by the fact that he is unable to discern the truth that Jesus is saying. You see this in verse 11 where Jesus, seemingly with another stroke from the hammer of humility, says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. Now again, this is significant. As the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus would have thought of himself as relying upon the law and boasting in his knowledge of God and knowing God's will and approving of the things that are excellent. Nicodemus would have declared himself to be someone who could recognize the truth of God. And yet here, Jesus, the Son of God, the beloved of the Father, comes bearing witness to the truth about life with God, and Nicodemus cannot understand what he's talking about. Nicodemus does not even accept what Jesus says to be true. 
Now, as I said, he would, know, he would say that he knew God in truth, and yet here, when God incarnate is standing before him declaring what he knew and saw regarding the truth, Nicodemus could not receive it as true. You know what that's called? That's called being deluded, being caught in a delusion, where what you think to be true isn't actually what's true. And it keeps you from understanding and perceiving the reality of the truth. That was Nicodemus. Now, it's important adding to that the weight of what Jesus says here. It's important to understand what Jesus means when he speaks here in the plural. In verse 11, Jesus says, we speak of what we know. And you, you is plural as well, you do not accept our testimony. Now, the, the plural you there means that Jesus isn't just speaking to Nicodemus, but he's, he's speaking collectively to the entire group to which Nicodemus belongs, right? So, like, not just Nicodemus, but all the other leadership of Israel that Nicodemus belonged to, Jesus is saying, none of you accept what I'm saying. But then he says, when he uses the we and the are, what is Jesus talking about there? Who else is coming alongside Jesus and bearing witness to what Jesus is saying as true? Well, some say that this our and we, this plural that Jesus speaks in, is referring to Jesus in tandem with the ministry of John the Baptist. Others say that this is Jesus in tandem with the ministry of the prophets. Others say this is Jesus and his disciples working together to proclaim the truth to Nicodemus and the rulers in Israel. But I think that we find more clarity whenever we just look down a little further in this chapter and pay attention to what's said in verses 31 through 34. In those verses, the all that Jesus uses here, or the we or the our, everyone who is speaking when Jesus is speaking, is identified really as the collective witness of the triune God speaking through and in Jesus Christ. So follow with me in verses 31 through 34. This is John the Baptist bearing witness about Jesus. He says, he who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth, but he who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he bears witness, and no one receives his witness. He who has received his witness sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, obviously, we're going to dive into these verses more whenever we get there. But if this section says anything, it's teaching us that when Jesus speaks and testifies to the truth, it is the Son speaking the words of the Father by the Holy Spirit. Now, the similarity of language between John 3, 31 through 34, and then John 3, 11 through 13 makes clear to us that when Jesus is speaking of others who are coming alongside of him and bearing witness with him to the truth, he is talking about the witness of the Father and the witness of the Spirit that is present in his own witness. So when Jesus is speaking the truth to us, in other words, it's not just Jesus speaking of his, on his own. It's not just Jesus speaking of his own authority. It's not just Jesus as a good teacher, as as a well-respected man, as a miracle worker, telling us what his thoughts are about how to live a good and godly life. It is actually God the Father and God the Spirit coming alongside God the Son and speaking the truth of the realities of heaven to us. Therefore, to receive the testimony of Jesus is to receive the testimony of God the Father and God the Spirit that was revealed through Jesus, right? Amen? <laughs> and to reject the testimony of Jesus concerning the heavenly realities that he's bearing witness to is to reject the witness of the Father and to reject the witness of the Spirit. In other words, you cannot refuse to accept the teachings of Jesus and still somehow have a relationship with the Father and be full of the Spirit. If you have a relationship with the Father, it tells us in John 6, 45, that everyone whom the Father is bringing to salvation, he teaches them to come to Jesus. 
So anyone who has a real relationship with God the Father, that relationship will manifest by the Father bringing that person to Jesus. Everything in our dealings with God the Father must run through His Son. That's what Peter says, we, we, or Hebrews says, we draw near to God through Jesus Christ. If you have a genuine, true relationship with God, your creator, it will manifest in your devotion to his beloved son. Now, there are many religions, there are many spiritual people who claim to have knowledge about the reality of God in this world and who still reject the truth about Jesus. Jesus comes to us and tells us that's impossible. You cannot have true spiritual knowledge about God. You cannot have true spiritual knowledge about heaven. If in your knowledge you are not being brought to me, is what Jesus says. The only way, as it says in uh, John 3, 33, the only way that you and I can set our seal to the truth of God is for you and I to receive the truth that God testifies to us and it's made known to us in his son, Jesus Christ. So by refusing to accept the words of Jesus, Nicodemus was revealing the fact that no matter what he appeared to be on the outside, and no matter what he thought himself to be before God, in his heart he was still estranged from true life with God the Father, Son, and Spirit. So Jesus humbles him by saying, in all of his knowledge of the truth, he still had not come to be able to discern and recognize what was true about the God he claimed to know. There's one more stroke that Jesus lands against Nicodemus' spiritual pride in John 3.12, where he says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In effect, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here that because of his spiritual blindness and his refusal to accept the truth that Jesus was telling him, they had reached an impasse and they could not go any further. There was no way for Nicodemus to move forward in understanding what Jesus had to teach him about heavenly realities so long as Nicodemus continued in unbelief regarding Jesus' teaching about earthly realities. If Nicodemus was not able and willing to receive and believe in what Jesus had to say about earthly things, then he is not going to be able to accept and receive and believe what Jesus has to say about heavenly things. Right? It's just an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you can't do the lesser, you're not going to be able to do the greater. Now, so many people think that they trust Jesus with heavenly realities, when in reality, they don't trust him at all, even with earthly realities. They still don't trust Jesus with their marriages. They don't trust Jesus with their jobs. They don't trust Jesus with stewarding their finances or getting food and clothing. They don't trust Jesus in their suffering or in loving their enemies or devoting themselves to obeying his will, praying to the Father in his name. They don't trust Jesus in cutting off the hand of temptation or in walking in practical holiness. But for some reason, they think that even though they don't trust Jesus in all these things, they can trust Jesus with their eternal destiny. They can trust Jesus to enter into heaven. Well, Jesus says to us, if you can't trust me in the lesser things, you are not going to be able to trust me in the greater things. If you cannot trust Jesus and live in faith in lesser things, why do you think you're going to be able to trust him in greater things? If you can't trust Jesus enough to turn away from sin, what makes you think you're going to trust Jesus enough to endure trials? If you can't trust Jesus enough to turn away from temptation, what makes you think you're going to trust Jesus enough when your life is on the line? If you don't know the practicalities of real, genuine, heartfelt, true obedience to the Lord in your everyday life, what makes you think you're going to stand firm in obedience to the Lord when your life is on the line? When you endure persecution, or even whenever you come to that last point of facing death, if you haven't trusted Jesus with your earthly matters of living everyday life, 
What makes you think that when you come to the point of death, you're going to trust him as the good shepherd of your soul to see you safely through the valley of the shadow of death? If you haven't learned to trust in him in these lesser things, you're not going to be able to trust in him in those greater things. Now, specifically, what is Jesus talking about when he speaks about the earthly things and the heavenly things in relation to Nicodemus? Well, I think this is obviously referring to the things that Jesus had just been speaking about with Nicodemus, right? The reality of the new birth and the need for the new birth in order to be a part of God's kingdom. Maybe even stretching back into into John chapter 2 where Jesus is cleansing the temple and he's trying to re, uh, redirect the worship of the people so that they're true and, 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 and engaging in acceptable worship. The reality that we must experience the new birth on earth before we would be permitted to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I think that's what Jesus is getting at whenever he's comparing or contrasting the earthly things or comparing the earthly things with the heavenly things. Experiencing the new birth is foundational to being a part of and experiencing the kingdom of heaven. And if you refuse to accept Jesus' teaching about the new birth, then there's no way for you to be able to accept the more difficult realities of the kingdom of heaven that he's going to make known to us later in this book. See, the the, the new birth, in other words, is foundational to everything else that happens in the Christian life. You cannot understand what it means to live in fellowship with God if you don't understand the reality and the necessity of the new birth. It's, it's, It's the opening of the spring of life that leads to the rest of the Christian life enjoying that spring. It's, it's, it's a, the founding of your Christian life. It begins when God lays that foundation through the gospel of Jesus by making you a new creature on the inside. And then from that inside renewed nature, you are then beginning to build up a life that is honoring to the Lord in all other areas. But it's got to begin on the inside for you to understand how to do that with anything else on the outside. Jesus says, unless you understand these earthly things, these things that have already been revealed to you on earth, Nicodemus, the new birth, if you don't understand these things, you are not going to be able to believe in what I have to say about heavenly realities that you don't know about yet. For example, the things that Jesus goes on to make known to us in the Gospel of John, these heavenly realities. One of them is the full divinity of Jesus Christ and his equality with the Father and the Spirit. You cannot understand the nature of God as triune if you have not yet been born again by the work of the triune God. Or the spiritual nature of his kingdom, that Jesus was not coming to establish an earthly kingdom that would undo the Romans 2,000 years ago. He was coming to establish his heavenly spiritual kingdom that will one day cover the world, cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Sorry, post-millennials, I'm not a post-millennial. But one day Jesus will usher in the fullness of his spiritual kingdom into this world at his second coming. Nicodemus couldn't understand that. None of the other Jews could understand that until they were born again. When Jesus begins to teach about acceptable worship, the spiritual nature of true worship in order to have the kind of worship that the Father is seeking or the reality that all of our spiritual strength and vitality for living the Christian life and walking in fellowship with God, all of our strength to do that comes from feeding upon the flesh of the Son of God and drinking His blood and having an understanding that Jesus stepped down from heaven to be a perfect man to give His life for the world. You cannot understand what it means to feed upon his flesh. You can't grasp what it means to drink his blood if you have not yet been born of God. You'll turn that into some kind of superstitious construct like the Roman Catholic Church has done. Hocus pocus, it's Jesus' real body and blood now. Drink it. That's what he told you to do. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about feeding upon him in faith. That in every moment of life, you are, you are looking back to Jesus as the only and sole sufficient source of all the life you need. 
You're feeding upon his body. That is, you are feeding upon his holy, righteous, sanctified life. You're feeding upon the fact that Jesus is the acceptable sacrifice that was given in your place. You're feeding upon the fact that when Jesus hung upon the cross, he hung upon the cross bearing your sins in that place. You're feeding upon his blood. You're drinking his blood. You're taking in the reality that secures for you the promises of the new covenant. You are owning those realities by faith for your own soul. You're saying, Lord, you've promised. You've promised to forgive me of my sin. You've promised that you will cleanse me of my sin when I confess them to you. Lord, in the blood of Jesus Christ, I believe that you will cleanse me from everything that's offensive in your sight. You come, you, you feed upon the blood of Christ whenever you take up that blood as your only hope of covering in the presence of the Lord. That which enables you to be covered in Christ's righteousness and made acceptable to him. That's what it means to feed upon Christ. You're never going to understand that until you've been born again. You're not going to understand how to do that until the reality of new spiritual life has been poured into you. I hope it's good. It's good to me. I, uh... You know, the other truth that Nicodemus was not going to be able to understand apart from the new birth is what Jesus is just about to make known to him in verses 14 and 15. That the Son of Man, in order for Nicodemus to experience salvation with God, the Son of Man had to be lifted up like a snake on a, on a stake. Here I am rhyming again. I hate whenever that happens. Nicodemus could not understand, nor could any of the other Jews, as we're going to see in the Gospel of John, they could not understand what it meant for the Son of Man to be lifted up for the sins of his people and the salvation of the world. Not until he was born again could he understand the heavenly realities that Jesus was going to make known to him later. And the fact that he would not receive Jesus' teaching or accept his wisdom concerning the new birth, all that reveals is the fact that he was at an impasse with the truth that Jesus was going to make known to him later. And until he got the one, he wasn't going to be able to grasp the others. These are just a few examples of the heavenly realities that Jesus came to make known to us. Realities that, that move us beyond uh, the life in this world, that look, look past life in this fallen world, and that bring us to an understanding of what it means to live a true life of fellowship with God, our Heavenly Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from experiencing the reality of what Jesus teaches concerning the new birth, a person will never be enabled to come to know and experience the heavenly realities he came down from heaven to make known to us. And so that's where Nicodemus was. He was at an impasse. And what was the answer to Nicodemus's problem? He's confused in his lack of ability to understand. He is rejecting the truth that Jesus is making known to him, and now he is at an impasse, and he can't move forward until he receives and accepts what Jesus has already said. So what's the answer to Nicodemus's problem from this point forward? Well, in his humility, he not only needed to be humbled to see what was not true about him, he needed to see the exaltation of Christ and to understand what was true about Jesus. He did need to see himself brought low, but more than that, he needed to see Jesus Christ lifted high. And that's exactly where Jesus flows next. Into the Son of Man being lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Now, we're going to pick up right there next week. But as we close, let me offer an application of what we see here in John 3, 9 through 12. You see what Jesus is doing here in these verses with Nicodemus. He's pointing out to Nicodemus his 
deep lack in spiritual things, and he's pointing out the reality of his spiritual poverty over and against Nicodemus' own perception of spiritual maturity. So Nicodemus came to Jesus, remembering, thinking, remember, thinking that he was someone, thinking that he had it figured out, that he had recognized truth about Jesus. And here Jesus is telling him, Nicodemus, you don't get anything yet. Now, it's important to understand that in this, in this effort of Christ to humble Nicodemus and to make him understand the truth about his spiritual state and the lack of his own spiritual state before the Lord, it's important to understand that Jesus is not merely doing this in order to cut Nicodemus down. He's not merely doing this to make Nicodemus feel bad about himself or to bring him down to a place of of shame and despair before the Lord. He's bringing Nicodemus into a place of humility so that Nicodemus can start to see the truth about Jesus clearly. Jesus is bringing Nicodemus to a place, in other words, where all of his false hopes are, are crumbling and left in dust upon the floor. He's bringing Nicodemus to the point where Nicodemus would finally be set free and turn away from hoping in lesser things in order to turn to God and behold God's salvation and hope in greater things. Only by being humbled to see that his own religion had accomplished nothing for him in his relationship with God, only by seeing that would Nicodemus finally be brought to the place where his relationship with God would no longer be defined by what he did. See, only by seeing the uselessness of what Nicodemus had devoted his whole life to in his relationship to God, only by seeing the vanity of it, the emptiness of it, the lack of spiritual depth to it, only by coming to the point where he could see that would he actually turn away from those things and begin looking outside of himself for an answer. Beloved, we all must come to this point of spiritual humility in our walk with Christ or else we will not be saved. When God causes us to be born again, he awakens us to see the foolishness of all the false hopes we were resting on and everything that we believed would make us right with God before. I don't know what it was for you, but for me, as many of you know, it was baptism in the Lutheran Church. It was catechism and confirmation. It was participating in communion. It was tithing of every bit of money that came into my possession. Having some semblance of morality. All of those things in my mind made me believe that I was in the right with God. And that if I had gone, if I had died, I would definitely have gone to heaven. Because clearly, I have a relationship with God. I mean, I've been baptized. I preached a sermon at my confirmation. Doesn't that mean that I'm right with God? I've told God that I've given my allegiance to him. Isn't that enough to make him happy? It wasn't until the Holy Spirit awakened me to what true and living faith in God is that I began to realize the vanity and the emptiness of all those other hopes that I was holding on to. It's nothing but just formal, empty hypocrisy covered over with religious veneer. I don't know what it is that you used to hold on to, but don't you remember the liberation that your soul felt when God came in his saving grace and shattered all of those hopes All those false hopes. My friend, when Christ moves with his resurrection power and glory to make you new, he begins by emptying you of all that is old. And that not only deals with things like sexual immorality and drunkenness and and the other external sins that we could talk about, but more so, it's emptying us of our false religion emptying us of false beliefs that would keep us from coming and knowing Jesus Christ in truth. So the absolute necessity of spiritual humility is something that we cannot pass over. Matthew 5.3, it says, Jesus says that this is foundational to experiencing the blessing of heaven. You cannot 
be a recipient of the kingdom of heaven unless you are poor in spirit. Isaiah 57, 15, it says that the Lord is high and lofty. He dwells in a high and holy place, but he also dwells with those who are crushed in spirit and those who are of a lowly spirit. You know, in order for God to draw near to you, you know what he's got to do? He's got to strip you of your pride. He's got to bring you to the place where you actually are lowly and you actually are contrite. You're broken before him. Until God brings you to the point of brokenness, you will never be able to be made whole by the gospel. James 4, 6, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, there's no saving grace for us apart from us being humbled in our own eyes. My friends, some of you long for the nearness and fellowship of God, but you never seem to be able to find it. Why is that? Why is it that we can long for deeper intimacy with the Lord and yet never come to the point where we actually begin experiencing it? Or at least go long, a long time before we experience it. Well, to quote from uh, Leonard Ravenhill, it's because you stink with pride, that's why. Because we stink with pride. And God does not give grace to the prideful. He gives grace to the humble. My friend, you need to pursue humility. You need to let the teaching of Christ humble you. And what that means is you need to keep yourself under the application of Christ's teaching even when it's uncomfortable. You need to let yourself be broken under the, the, the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in that brokenness, you need to draw near to the Lord. You have to be made small in your own eyes in order for Christ to look big. He must increase and we must decrease. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, you, Holy Spirit, you are the great exalter of Christ. And we pray that you would do that work of exalting him in our own hearts today. Please, Lord, exalt the glory of Christ by humbling us in our own eyes so that we can see him in his glory more clearly. Father, we pray this for the glory of Christ and for the purity of our allegiance to Christ the King and our devotion to his kingdom. Amen. Hear the benediction from James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. May we all move forward humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand this week and entrusting ourselves to his faithful care. May you go in the peace of Jesus' name. Amen.